Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve, and it is great to have you with us. There is a lot of buzz around quantum and a lot of investment. The hopes and expectations for this technology are high. We're told it could solve problems that currently seem unsolvable, revolutionizing old industries and creating new ones and potentially altering the balance of military and economic power. Joining us today to discuss quantum technology, the possibilities and the perils is Laura Thomas. Laura spent more than 18 years in national security and leadership roles in industry, the intelligence community, the National Security Council, the US Departments of State and Defense and the US Congress. Laura is currently the Chief of Staff at Inflection, a global quantum technology and manufacturing company. Laura, great to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So first, give us the big picture, if you would. Just how transformative do you think quantum could be? Uh, I think it will completely change the way that we sense and experience the world around us. Uh, It's one of these platform shift technologies that only comes around you know, every uh, hundred years or so. And I think quantum will be as important to the future uh, as the semiconductor era was to, you know, in the 1950s and 60s. For those of us that are not tech people, can you explain briefly and simply what quantum technology is and how it differs from the technologies we're using today? Sure. It's using uh, atomic particles, atoms, and using them as sensors, using them as processors. Essentially, you know, we've, we've harnessed the atom to, to do things like fission and create nuclear weapons, but we haven't really until now taken individual atoms and used them alone to do certain functions. So what we can do nowadays, though, is we can trap an individual atom and we can shine laser light on it and manipulate that atom through laser pulses. And we can create essentially an extremely precise sensor, uh, but also computational capability. So there are these different kinds of technologies, computers, sensors, networks. Should we be thinking of them individually or as a sector? Uh, it, It is a sector, though generally there are three large components that make up the sector. So we have quantum computing, which often gets a lot of buzz in the media, and that will be absolutely transformational is important, but that's a bit longer term. Uh, We also have quantum sensing, which is more in the year and now. If you've ever had an MRI, then you have essentially interacted with quantum technology. Um, There are quantum sensors out there today that sense very large swaths of radio frequency spectrum, for example, which has incredible implications for the national security community, but also for telecom companies. And then the third uh, area of quantum is quantum communication. And that's essentially using uh, quantum properties to transmit information. So talk, if you would, about this benefit to the intelligence community that you mentioned about being able to discern certain radio frequencies. Right now, we only see certain parts of the spectrum. We only transmit and communicate and, and listen in on some parts of the spectrum. But if we can expand that uh, would greatly uh, expand our scope and give us the capability to pick up signals from much farther distances and also the ability to communicate in ways that uh, cannot necessarily be detected. Quantum computing. 
um, much, much faster than the computing we have today. Is that right? Uh, that's one way to describe it. Um, it's, it's probably more accurate to say it's just simply a different type of computing. Quantum computer uh, in the future sufficiently large enough can, could solve problems that we just can't solve on current computers today. So more capability. What kinds of problems could theoretically a quantum computer or a network of them solve? Uh, an example would be, uh, it's called the traveling salesman problem. Um, when you think about Amazon, for example, they have you know, millions of packages every day that they need to deliver. And they have you know, thousands and thousands of trucks and aircraft that all have to work you know, in harmony to, to get those packages to where they need to go. And a computer nowadays, what we call a classical computer, simply can't take in these you know, thousands of inputs and calculate what is the most optimal route that one of those aircraft, one of those uh, Amazon trucks can take in order to preserve fuel, get the package to the customer. Because um, if you could do that, you could shave off you know, all sorts of time, but you could save money. I mean, and when you're talking about uh, fra even fractions of a percent, I mean, that's extremely meaningful uh, for a large organization. Um, there are other things with banks when you think about uh, balancing portfolios and you know, how stocks interact with each other and trying to determine which stocks you could pick and, and how the market might play out. Uh, this is incredibly important for banks as well. Um, you know, quantum computing does get the limelight, but there's also a lot of interest from enterprise and industry in other areas of quantum, like quantum uh, timekeeping. Uh, when you think about the current time standards today, I mean, we have to we have to essentially take our devices and we ping off of a GPS satellite. And there's inherent latency that's involved in that. If we could essentially take away that latency and create terrestrial timing networks that are more precise, you can speed up data flows. So when you're talking to any organization that works with massive amounts of data, there's a very intense interest in how do we speed up data density in networks. And optical uh, atomic clocks are one example of that. One of the uh, currently unsolvable problems that I've read Quantum might be able to help with is climate change. Thoughts on that? Well, if you had uh, quantum sensors that essentially are detecting very minute, small changes in the environment, for example, the way the ice caps are melting, um, and you can take in all of that data, and then you can also process massive amounts of that data. It, we could uh, determine better ways um, to, to do all sorts of things. Uh, to include uh, one example is grid optimization. We think about electricity flowing over a grid. Um, how do you generate electricity in one part of the country, but then distribute it more evenly in the part that needs it rather than... Part of the country that perhaps it's early morning 3 a.m. people aren't plugging in their phones and computers in the same way as someone who's you know, 1 p.m. the height of the workday. So uh, grid optimization is another way where we could figure out ways to better distribute um, all the, the, the power generation that we have. Will quantum itself gobble up a lot of energy? No, uh, for the most part, uh, most of the, the studies indicate that, that it will not, though certainly that's an area that, that continues to be uh, explored. I mean, I can say quite firmly that our lab 
uh, that we have where we have active working uh, optical atomic clocks, um, RF sensors, and a computer. We're we're not, you know, our our power bill is not incredibly onerous. But isn't one of the challenges of quantum to make it scalable? And to make it scalable, won't it be an energy beast? Uh, No, but yes, I would say it's not an energy beast, but yes, scaling is the absolute challenge. And what we don't often hear about are the companies out there that are thinking about how do you actually get this technology to jump out of a lab and out of a very pristine, you know, laboratory condition and get it deployed into the field? And how do you think about manufacturing of these devices? How do you think about economies of scale? And how do you think about cost curves? We have to drive down the price of these devices. We have to drive down the size in order to make it more applicable to larger markets, to include beyond the defense market and to the enterprise market. In order to hit the economies of scale, we need to, to really make this technology uh, transformational and use to the common person. What's the biggest obstacle in doing that? Well, talent is is one of the first ones. This is a small. Yeah, I've read there industry. are only something like <laughs> five thousand quantum experts in the world. Uh, I don't know about that number specifically, but yeah, it's it's a small pool uh, to choose from. And then when you think about just the the sheer size of uh, China's quantum efforts, and there's a whole pool of individuals there that we can't necessarily pull from, or we don't want to necessarily pull from, or we would uh, if circumstances were a little bit different. Um, so yeah, getting the talent aligned with the need and and the interest uh, of the industry is a is a key challenge. I think the second challenge is supply chain. Uh, the fact is, this is an incredibly fractured and fragile supply chain. In some parts of the United States, there are pieces, components of quantum devices that are essentially one person in their garage making it. And that is not a dependable supply chain. The challenge is supply chain does exist in China. And China, with military-civil fusion, they have the capability to immediately and, and very um, powerfully direct their industries to, to make certain components. Um, so when the United States government really thinks about what to do about quantum and how to truly scale it, there's a huge supply chain challenge that, that it needs to tackle. I want to talk a lot more about China and what it's doing. But before we do, I want to tap again into your intelligence background and talk about encryption. Yep. Um, the fear has been that quantum is going to be able to bust current encryption. Um, are you worried about that? And is it possible to get ahead of that curve and make something quantum proof? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, look, we know that our adversaries are stealing all sorts of data now. It's called still now decrypt layer. Um, and when they can suck in just vast amounts of data and wait to the, the time when there is a sufficiently powerful enough quantum computer to crack that data, uh, that's going to be a really uh, horrendous day for not just the U.S. government, ally governments, but the industry. When you think about health records, you think about banking records, and, and what would happen if that were truly exposed. Um, but there are things that, that we can do today, and fortunately, the U.S. government and industry is, I mean, they are taking moves to roll out post-quantum cryptography um, in order to prevent against that sort of uh, cracking. Are they going to be successful, do you think? Well, uh, you're asking a very large organization to uh, completely change your large slots of its network. Uh, I think ultimately they will be successful, um, but it, it's going to take 
quite some time. And we're still waiting for certain standards to be set about what exactly that cryptography looks like. So you talk about encryption in terms of things like health records, intellectual property. What are the national security implications if some other nation, presumably China, can break our encryption? Well, the the world runs on a lot of the data that's on the internet when we think about um, the disruptive power that that one would have if they could bring down communication networks or make individuals um, not have faith and, and trust that those networks keep their data safe. Um, and you're, it would cause major disruption to the financial industry, um, to the insurance industry. To the intelligence business too. Yeah, yeah, going to the hospital. I mean, that's on the enterprise commercial side. Uh, when you think about the government side, of course, I mean, there's lots of government communications that uh, the government naturally would like to keep secret and to do so for, for a long time. So there are huge advantages to the first adopter, correct? Absolutely. Um, and and this, is, this is one of those technologies that we cannot afford uh, to be second in. There is a lot of investment going on by national governments, private sector, venture capital. Who's spending the most? Uh, well, by all accounts, it appears to be the Chinese uh, Communist Party. Um, from what we have observed, it appears that they've put about $10 billion, if not some estimates, estimated up to, to $20 billion into the technology. Um, compared that to the U.S. government, National Quantum Initiative, it's about $2 billion. Um, but one thing that is also a bit um, difficult to estimate is, you know, there's a lot of things that are quantum that aren't necessarily labeled as quantum. So some key uh, technologies, at least very germane to, to my company, for example, photonics, photonic integrated circuits. Um, you wouldn't necessarily associate that with quantum, but it is a technology that really matters. So one thing that needs to be done is a, a more comprehensive look at what are the underlying technologies that build the quantum devices of the future and, and a very comprehensive supply chain uh, assessment analysis. Is the U.S. paying enough attention to those things in your estimation? No. What do they need to do? For the Department of Defense, if we had one person that was really responsible for all things quantum, uh, that should take a, a very comprehensive look at what's going across the uh, on across the entire Department of Defense and that technology. I mean, DOD you know, is going to be one of the first adopters. We sort of view it um, like the semiconductor industry. And this is not just DOD, but the larger government. I mean, why semiconductors were so successful is one, there was the government grants and the work that you know, spurred the industry. But most importantly, the government was a buyer. They stepped up and said, if you make this, we're going to buy it. What the industry really needs is the government to be a good customer again. Step in and buy these devices. We have to stop just only funding it up to prototype stage, but really cross that valley of death where once these devices are out there, we start buying them and buy them in volume. And when you start to do that, you begin to be able to manufacture. You're able to hit economies of scale and expand the markets over time. And then you reach into commercial markets. Is the failure to do this because people don't understand the technology, they don't have faith in the technology? What's, what's the explanation for why this isn't happening? 
Well, one challenge in the government specifically is just the way that our acquisition uh, process works. Um, and there, you know, there's <laughs> so many different ways I believe you'd have to tackle this that would be multi-series podcast in and of itself. But a major challenge is the defense primes. I mean, they, they often want to take this technology and they want to include it in their bids. But if they do, because of the technology readiness level, they're often, it, it risks their bid. So they don't include it. So if the United States government, the Department of Defense would step up and incentivize those defense primes to say, okay, you're building this you know, platform. You're, for example, you're building this Humvee. We're going to actually score you higher in your bid if you also include redundant sensors on that vehicle, such as quantum clocks, because we know that we need a redundant source of timing truth. Therefore, you're going to score even better. Um, that would go a long way in helping get this technology into the field and into the hands of the, the warfighters that really need it. There's some concern that venture capital may dry up, presumably because there isn't this kind of purchasing of the technology when it's developed. How worried are you about that money going away and what will it mean for the development of the technology? Now, do you think that there's a... a misperception in some cases from from government folks that I talk to. I mean, they, they just think the venture capital world is abundant and there's all this venture investment going into quantum. And yes, I mean, there's, there's quite a bit, but it's not nearly enough to help the technology jump the chasm. Um, and, that, you know, in, in technologies that are nearer term that have actual revenue off ramps like quantum sensors, it, there's going to be more venture capital in that. Now, historically, there was quite a bit of venture capital in the computing space, quantum computing. Um, but I think people have realized quantum computing is very, very difficult. And the time horizon is a bit longer than a lot of people estimated. So I, I do see a retraction in venture funding for quantum computing. Um, and I think the government's going to have to step in. And you know, if this is something you really want to happen, how do you, how do you incentivize that market without it getting locked up? in you know, the national labs and, and basic research? How do you get it actually applied and developed and out into the field for people to use and experiment on and provide feedback? I've seen the phrase quantum winter when it comes to VC investment. Are you afraid of that? Uh, yeah, I think anyone at any quantum company is, is certainly afraid of it. I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think that there is a bit of a quantum spring that's actually happening right now, especially along the lines of the nearer term quantum devices that are absolutely here now that are well beyond prototype phase and, and ready for scale manufacturing. What are the implications for the countries that don't have the talent and don't have the resources to invest in quantum R&D? Is there going to be an immense divide between, let's say, China and the US, maybe the EU and the rest of the world? Uh, it's it's hard to predict, um, you know, the the second and third order effects of this technology, um, but that that's why it is so important that that we have to you know really hedge our bets and make sure that we're in a pole position. Um, I, this is where alliances are going to come into play and be incredibly critical. I mean, the fact is is the 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 workforce that we need for quantum is not only in the U.S. This is a global challenge and it's going to require global solutions. and It's going to require intense work among allied countries. Um, yeah, AUKUS is, a, is, a, is a, a great example of how we can 
you know, use different nations and their workforce and also their specialties to really begin to figure out, okay, what should we manufacture? What component piece of the supply chain should be located in the UK, for example? What piece should be in Australia and what piece should be in the US? Where do we come together? Where do we actually assemble these devices? How do we export it among those countries? I think AUKUS provides a, a, a good framework for thinking about that and, and implementing it. But we don't have that implemented at this point in time. Not fully, but there, there's definitely the framework of it within AUKUS. And, um, you know, at least at inflection, you know, we're having a lot of conversations among our government partners and, you know, working with them and, and trying to get everyone around the same table to, to talk about these exact issues. You mentioned that the U.S. needs to be in pole position. Is it now? I, it, it's certainly debatable. Um, if you look at some of the latest RAND reports, which I think are fabulous and extremely well-researched, uh, we are in many ways in quantum computing and quantum sensors, not as much in quantum networking or quantum communications. And I think what's important to note is even if you're in pole position now, when you look at the amount of patents that are being filed in China and just the, the the sheer investment size that's going into it. I mean, that's a position that could be very easily lost. They are quickly, quickly uh, closing the gap uh, on that position and, and we can't afford to you know, wrestle our laurels. What if we do lose the pole position? What happens? Uh, I, I hate to picture what the world looks like in 20 years. I and mean, we've already seen what China can and is willing to do with technology against their own population. Um, authoritarian coercive measures to keep people in line. Uh, I think quantum would, would just augment that even more. And that's, that's not the world that I want to live in. What's the timeline? That's a great question. Everyone always asks that. And it's impossible to answer uh, with any, yeah, I guess, real... Um, deep, you know, true assessment that would say, yes, it's definitely 15 years away. It's 10 years away. It's five years away. I will say here and now, there are quantum sensors that exist. They do things that we've never been able to do before. Um, they're larger devices. We're getting them filled in as we speak. Um, so that's here. That That is a threat. It's also an opportunity. Uh, quantum computing, it's farther out on the horizon, but the most transformational. And it's, it's anyone who gives you a specific date, uh, I would question that date. We talked a little bit about what the U.S. needs to do. I'd like to hearken back to that if I could. If you were going to lay out three, four action steps for the U.S. government, U.S. industry, academia to take right now to maintain what you call the pole position, what would those action steps be? Uh, the first is I would appoint someone at DOD to be essentially the quantum czar. And they would have the ability to work across the services and to really get a handle on what is what are all the different areas within quantum that, that DOD um, has interest investment. And go one layer beyond quantum, because if we just look at quantum, we're not looking truly at quantum. We're, that, that is going to be an erroneous word. The better way to look at it is what are we doing across position navigation and timing, PNT, and then combining that with what are we doing in quantum computing. So that will be the first step is really a, a 
a, an assessment of where we are and what do we need to jump that chasm specifically for Department of Defense applications. Um, second would be getting a handle on our supply chain, really understanding what are all the component pieces that are going to have to be shored up and on, I mean, onshore in the United States in order to truly develop and win at, in this industry and then incentivize those companies. Identify a basket of companies that are willing to take on the supply chain challenge and start to vertically integrate and create these devices at scale. And it's similar to uh, when we face COVID, the mRNA vaccine. I mean, the U.S. is very fearful of picking winners and losers, and we certainly don't want to beat China to beat China. But there are industrial policy areas where the U.S. can step in that's not completely, you know, anti-capitalism are affecting the markets. And I think the MR mRNA vaccine was a great example. The U.S. government picked a handful of companies and they said, do whatever it takes. We're going to buy on the other end of that. You're going to have a buyer of massive amounts of vaccines. And by the way, we're going to fund you to get you off the ground in the beginning. If we did that in quantum, the investment would not be that much. But I think it would have completely uh, transformational results. Five years down the road. Laura Thomas, Chief of Staff at the Global Quantum Technology and Manufacturing Company Inflection. Thanks so much for being with us today to talk about the mysteries of quantum. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you'll join us again. This has been NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Take care. <laughs>